Sheila Hamilton, and this is Beyond Well. This is a podcast for people who want to learn more about your interior. And every week we talk with a different person about a different thing that goes on in life, how we cope with it. This week, we're talking about trauma. Angela Schellenberg has spent a lifetime dealing with grief and loss and trauma, PTSD. She knows firsthand what it's like to rebuild a life when you lose your parents young and lose your parents traumatically. She's currently a mental health trauma counselor and the executive director of United Trauma Counseling Center. It's a nonprofit that helps people who experience grief, loss, trauma, and PTSD. Angela, thank you for coming up today. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, I was telling um, Jenna and Brian that, and by the way, I didn't even say hello to Jenna <laughs> and Brian. Hello, that's yeah. all right. <laughs> but I was telling them uh, that when I first met you, you're almost like the most optimistic, sunny person in the room, wherever you go. I noticed that about you. You carry an energy with you that is sheer love and light. Was that as a result of going through what you went through? You know, I, I think so. I th- thank you, Sheila. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm blushing. Um, yes, I, I think so. I think when you travel through um, trauma and dark things, when you finally feel like you see the light, it, it is, it's something you want to hold on to. Yeah. So let's go back to the first trauma. You're 16 yeah. years old and, and what you're watching TV. Is that right? Yeah. I was in my living room um, in Puyallup, Washington, and we're watching the television. And I have my mother who had just got home from her first day of physical therapy um, at Good Samaritan Hospital. And she had almost died three years before. So she, my father didn't pick her up from her first day. And we were wondering, that's weird. Anyway, we're sitting there and we see the newscaster comes on, come on. And he said, you know, two men have been shot and killed in a South Hill area home. And we looked at the, at the TV and there was my dad's car and it was a blue station wagon that I would recognize anywhere because we hated it. <laughs> it was so ugly. And it um, said, happiness has seen your mother-in-law's picture on the back of a milk carton missing person. So we realized right away that was my, it was my dad. And so mm-hmm. we just sort of watched this unfold in our living room. Uh, was that before? I, um, I'm just trying to understand what was the reason that the news used to put that out before the family members of the victims were contacted? Because now I know just being a journalist for yeah. so long, that would never happen. Yeah, they didn't say the names because they said we can't say the names because of notification of the kin. Oh, but they got did. It. We did know because we saw my dad's car. Wow. So we were just wondering, wow. is he alive? Is he dead? What happened? What were the circumstances of his death? Well, he was visiting a friend um, in Puyallup, Washington and the friend's half-brother came over and killed his own half-brother and my dad in the house together. So he had claimed that he found the bodies and didn't actually say that he did it. So there was a period of time where he was running around free, but he was a suspect. Wow. So you also had the trauma of not knowing if the person who harmed your father might come and harm you as well. Yeah. And he would call in the middle of the night. He would call and heavy breathe on the phone. And so I would be on the phone. And, you know, you see those movies of... uh, like a babysitter where the guy's watching her through the sliding glass door. And I was just terrified because I didn't know, you know, we thought maybe it could be him, but we didn't know. Wow. Did you go through a trial and the entire process of the legal system, which can also be kind of traumatizing? Yes, we did. So this happened when I was a sophomore in high school at Puyallup High School. And then when I was a, when I was graduating, I went to my senior um, graduation, stayed up all night and then went to the trial. Um, and it was it was brutal. But I think one of the most difficult things was at the 
at the funeral, I was standing there and I could feel that he was there. He was at my father's funeral, the killer. And I could just feel it in my bones. I knew in the back left side of the, of the church that he was there. I could just tell. And so we did a receiving line afterwards and he came up to me. He looked me in the eye and my whole body just froze. I knew it was him. And he looked at me in the eye and said, I hope they find the guy that did this. And I knew right then I was staring right at him. Oh, oh my God. yeah. Um, I want you guys to jump in anytime because Angela's story, if you would think, well, perhaps that's going to be enough trauma for one person to deal with her entire life. She's got her load. <laughs> But her mother also struggled with mental illness. Hmm. And so was the mental illness a part of watching the trauma of your father's murder? Or was it because she was all, all she'd always been mentally ill and probably hadn't taken care of herself in that way that people need to? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, she was at um, 11. My mother had a nervous breakdown. She, I, I would later learn that she was sexually abused by her father. Um, her stepfather in Merced, California for many, many years, and she'd never actually dealt with that. And so then my father joined a really strict religion, Seventh-day Adventist, and I think the guilt and shame that that put on her as a woman and sort of suppressing her into this is the way we believe and the man is in charge, it actually literally made her have a nervous breakdown. So I came home from school when I was 11. This was before my father's murder, and she had thrown my dad's clothes out on the floor. She thought she was gold in my ear um, and literally had to call the... the um, People in the white band to come and basically take her away until they took her to Western State Hospital. And how long was she in Western State? You know, it gets a little fuzzy as I'm writing my book. I'm sort of going through this, but she was there probably for about three to six months. Wow. And we would visit her there. So was this, was she out by the time that your father? Yes. And she was, she was completely out at she that was point. She was out. And at 13, she got encephalitis. They gave her lithium back there in the 80s. So I'm, I'm not sure as I was listening to your book, I thought, did she have bipolar? And no one knew. I just don't really know the diagnosis. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then she almost died at 13. She got encephalitis, a brain inflammation. And so when we had finally got back together, my grandmother had actually stole her away. That's when my father was killed. So we got her back that Christmas and then my father was murdered so it was just trauma after trauma after trauma um because she's what an age for this to happen 16 yeah. yeah um you're you're trying to find your own sort of place in the world as a young woman right both of your parents both of the people that you look up to and love and admire have been really taken away from you in one form or another yeah um what does this do to First of all, then I want you to kind of jump in here to the sense of well-being that a person might be able to have in the world if both of these ha things happen. Bam, bam. Yeah, we, we've, we've talked about this before on other shows, too. I think one of the things that happens with trauma is not just like the event itself, but what it does to our sense of the world and especially when you're at such that vulnerable age of, you know, you're not, you're not so young that you um, sort of aren't processing it. You're just at this ripe age where you really know what's going on and yet you don't have the full resources and capabilities to know how to handle something like that. Not that anybody knows how to handle something yeah, exactly. like that. Yeah, exactly. What age is right. that? Yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah. yeah. Right. At yeah. 25, then you know. Um, <laughs> But what happens is it really shakes our sense of the world being this predictable, controllable, and 
generally safe place. And so then not only are you kind of walking around with this terrible grief and terrible trauma, but now you're walking around in a world that is unpredictable and scary and dangerous. And that's what I think results in these kind of really long-term ways that trauma can impact us for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I was reading a study the other day just about the cortisol levels of people yeah. who are post-trauma like that, that they're like a hundred times yeah. what they are on a normal person's body. Do you remember that experience, Angela? Um, yeah, of how the trauma yeah. held. Yeah, yeah. You know, I remember my brother um, cried one time and just sort of looked at the wall and um, and didn't talk for a long time after that. And I remember for me, it just became this state of hypervigilance, just this, mm-hmm. I have to find a home for my mom. I mm-hmm. have to make sure we're okay. My horse is going to go away. Where does the dog go? I mean, just everyone coming in, taking away your stuff, just completely that feeling that I still struggle with at 47, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. holding that in my body and right. trying to figure out how to find a place for it. No kidding. All these concerns that really a family shouldn't have to have, yeah. much less the teenager in the family yeah. being the one that mm-hmm. has to be thinking about all of that stuff and trying to predict yeah. what's going to happen next. Were you also the oldest child? Yes. Oh. Yeah. So There's the... got to be like a, a, a whole different type of... of guilt in that because now you feel like you have to hold the family together yeah. on top of your hypervigilance, right? Yeah. Oh mm. yeah. I was responsible for all of them to my brother and my mom and every single thing. Just, yeah, it's a lot to hold. And did, did you yourself end up having a period where you just kind of lost it that you said like the pressure, <laughs> it, <laughs> we can't bear it after some, yeah. some things happen like that. You know, um, I was, I was 22 and my mother died. It was, she had had a stroke and I had been her caretaker since I was 11. And I think that's when I lost it. I, I remember um, working in Nordstrom in cosmetics and I had the thought of driving my car off the bridge. I was just so depressed and that compound grief and, mm-hmm. um, just, yeah, it was, it was a lot. And and I needed help. You know, I went and got therapy and I, um, had found a book in the bookstore, uh, motherless daughters by Hope Elderman that, you know, that mm-hmm. I picked up and I was like, okay, okay. Other people have gone through this. Mm-hmm. And at the same time I had some skills because I had already gone through, you know, my father's murder and loss and care. I'd already cared for my mother once. So I felt like I had, um, gained some skills, even even as I was losing it, if that makes sense. Sure. But I'm wondering if your experience is similar to mine where like I have always considered myself an incredibly optimistic and very resilient person. But I do believe that with every ding in your life, every shock, every upset that's so traumatic like this, that a little bit of your safety net of resilience is cut away. And unless you really work to stitch that net back together, the next time you fall, in your case... When it's a stroke years later and you're thinking, huh, well, yeah. why, why this and not mm-hmm. the murder, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there any basis for that, that this repeated kind of intrusions into our life kind of make us less likely to be as resilient second and third time? Well, we know that, and certainly, Angela, you're an expert on this um, as well. And we know that repeated and prolonged traumas tend to have a different impact on humans than one-time or non-interpersonal traumas do. Mm. But one of the things is it's incredibly difficult to predict what the thing is that's going to be the one that kind of, you know, knocks you off your edge. You know, you went through 
your mom being in Western State Hospital, mm-hmm. um, your your dad being murdered when mm-hmm. you're 16 years old, and then if if there were such a thing as putting like trauma on a hierarchy, your mom having a stroke might we might not put that as high up on the hierarchy as seeing your father murdered, and yet that's the thing that your mind and your psyche said that's it. I'm mm-hmm. at capacity. Yeah. And that's what happens yeah. for people yeah. is we can't ever predict which one it's going to be. And it's and it's incredibly varied for for across people as well. And I think a lot of people who do have that, that's it. That's all I mm-hmm. can do. They're not responding to the most proximal no. trauma. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't even say that they're the one they're you know, mm-hmm. they're responding to the proximal trauma. It's just this is the straw that sort of breaks the camel's back. Yeah, and yeah. and really it's the accumulation of them or it's the, oh, God, the world is exactly as I was afraid it is. Yes. It's a yeah. dangerous, unpredictable, mm-hmm. horrible place mm-hmm. where bad things happen all the time mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and it'll always be that way. Yeah. So have you guys ever used the ACE scores in your practices where you'll go and write the, the you know, do the checkbox about what traumas can do to you. And they've been able to show a correlation with most major mental illnesses and your ACE score. And so if you grew up in poverty, watch someone get violently or you were violently treated. If you have lost someone like I have to suicide or murder, um, divorce even, job changes, all of those have points on the ACE score. And when I did mine, I was so high. I was like oh my God, like I have to be more attentive Mm. of just exactly what trauma can do to the underpinnings of you. Not that I'm going to believe it because it's on a thing, but seeing it on a list like that, that other people, people who study this think that it's really important that you pay attention to how many of those dings you've had on your mental well-being. I I found that fascinating. Well, yeah, and related to that too is... Oftentimes, at least mental health professionals, when we think about trauma, we think about PTSD. Like there's this one diagnosis and that's the result of trauma. But when you're talking about the ACE scores or or kind of your experience, Sheila, trauma impacts people in all different ways. Mm-hmm. And so when I see people in my practice and they're coming in with difficulties around sexuality and intimacy or they're coming in with depression or anxiety that doesn't fit the PTSD category – all of those things could potentially be the body and mind's way of responding to trauma. Yeah. Or um, numbing behaviors. Absolutely. Right. Numbing behavior or over-controlling behaviors, you know, mm-hmm. trying to make sure that you're perfectionistic mm-hmm. and doing it right because you're so scared that if you don't, something else is going to happen. Yeah. Did you, Angela, at some point, I know that you've kind of devoted your life to helping other, especially girls who have experienced trauma, and you've gone all over the world for this in listening and holding their grief around these, like, because first world traumas are even more different than third world traumas. So was it re-triggering for you? Did you have that difficulty of like, if you truly share this kind of empathy and, and sorrow for these women, you were kind of finding yourself in that same groove again? Yeah. What comes to my mind is wounded healer. Mm. (laughs) That Ah. is definitely, Mm -hmm. um, I I was very triggered, especially working in the orphanages in in Thailand when they would see these young girls that would just be in so much trauma and I would just feel this overwhelming need to help them. But, but having to look at my own physical response to it and, and going home and crying and just really 
being so triggered. And for a long time, I didn't think I could be a counselor because I had so much trauma. Mm -hmm. So I, I really did shy away from it until mm. recently. What did you do to build those blocks back for yourself? Um, you know, therapy, I think I've been in therapy since I was 12. So it's the thing that actually saved me, therapy and education mm. and books, you know, just reading and reading and um, and traveling. I think traveling also heals trauma. You know, when you see, I lived in China for six years and, you know, I'm walking down the road and there's a guy coming out of the ditch and he has no teeth and mm-hmm. he's got a frog in one hand and a turtle in the other and he's smiling and he's so happy and I'm thinking oh my gosh you know there's so much um, joy in the world and also so much suffering that is universal Um, Mm -hmm. and so I think that travel for me has really helped heal my trauma. Mm. That makes me so excited to hear you say that because uh, first of all I just that matches my own experience with things but I also think in traveling what happens is we're able to see this common humanity yeah And, I mean, two things can happen when we gain perspective on other people's suffering. One is we can do the, oh, why am I suffering? I don't have it as bad as that person. Mm. And that, like, I hear so many people do that all of the time. Like, I was only assaulted once or my one of my parents is dead but not both of them. And we can just do this incredibly, like, invalidating thing. And that is so unhelpful. The other way to approach this is to be able to see the person who is also suffering and see like this common humanity and see the joy as well that we share, that it Mm -hmm. isn't just suffering. It's this whole experience of what being human is like. Yeah, I had a very similar experience because after... Um, my late husband died, I had the opportunity to go to Africa and participate in a kind of well-building experience for this very, very poor village in Ethiopia. And when you begin to see that most of them have lost their parents by the age of nine, 10, most of the men in that village were gone because of the AIDS epidemic and kids, their joy was like a stick and a like can. And they Mm -hmm. were the most joyful people. And it really it really shifted it for me. Like so much of what we do about trauma is, is what we decide we're going to do about trauma. We're connected. We're connected in our joy, but we're connected in our pain. Right. And I think sometimes people will hear stories like, like that or the guy coming out of the ditch with the turtle and and say, what is wrong with me that I'm complaining about the stuff in my life when it could be so much worse. And that is totally missing the point. It is. Mm. We are bound together in this common humanity in the things that bring us joy, Mm. in the capacity to love, and the capacity to hurt. And that a good life is not the absence of suffering. Like, that's not what produces a sense of joy and meaning in our life. And so the good news for people who have experienced significant trauma is that doesn't say anything about how meaningful and well-lived your life can be. Right. Because a meaningful life is not the absence of suffering. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. You know, I'm thinking as people listen to this, my experience is I can think of people who will hear some of these stories and say... Well, I bet my A score would be really, really high. Why am I not broken? Right. I don't have enough feeling. I don't have enough, uh, you know, like connection to things. Maybe I'm a sociopath because obviously that amazing I don't how we care. Can do that, right? right? Yeah. Like, I'm or not suffering be like, enough. Yeah. Or they'll <laughs> be like, well, I know what an A score is, which you know, you check off these various things that happen to you, and and they'll say, well, I only have one. Yeah. 
what what is wrong with me mm. that I am, am having such a hard I'm time. I'm having yeah. such an incredibly wow. hard yeah. time. Mm-hmm. And I think we I think I'm I'm familiar with the instrument and I think the one thing that it might overlook or people can take the wrong way is this idea of circumstance and person interaction. Yes. And the circumstance isn't just the circumstance of the trauma. Mm -hmm. It's the whole context. Mm -hmm. So I've worked with people who had all, all different kinds of trauma, but for, for instance, somebody who has been sexually assaulted, the actual experience of the sexual assault, the physical aspect of the sexual assault is, is part of that story. Yeah. But then it can be surrounded by this cloud of invalidation that starts with, this shouldn't be happening. No, it's normal. Or this feels good. Mm -hmm. No, it doesn't. Uh, All the way through to this happened. No, it didn't. Yep. Um, And it's, you know, are they struggling because of the physical part of their trauma or or are they struggling because of the cloud of invalidation or the context that surrounds it. So, you know, it's really, really complex to say, well, I've had these six different things happen because it's like, well, where was I? Who was I? What's my biology? What are my prior experiences? And how did my immediate environment respond to the difficult things that I went through? All of those are really complex variables in the equation. Yeah, no kidding. So, Angela, if you, um, if you, I, I, what I'm really interested in is when you were looking at the, just the facts my father has been murdered. His killer is out on the, on the street. And I am home with a mentally ill mother. Take us back into the body of that 16-year-old girl and try to explain to people what it is like to live in that environment. What, what, how do you wake up in the morning? Do you have cereal to, before? Do you, what yeah. is going on? <laughs> Gosh, I, I can remember I, it. I, I, I was yeah. just thinking... And you're trying to go to school and learn? Yeah, and, and that's, you know, I became an elementary teacher before this, and I, I realized I was diagnosed with a learning disability. And thinking back now, it wasn't a learning disability. It was trauma. Right. And, and I think at 16, you know, when you get that kind of news, what I remember is just only wanting to sleep. I would try mm-hmm. to sleep so that I could not have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. I think, think that was a trauma sure. response. But just that sense of, oh, my God, I've seen a bear. I mean, it was just that yeah. adrenal glands that I didn't know about them. We didn't know so much about trauma. There wasn't trauma-informed anything. So I just thought I was crazy. And then when you're dealing with gun violence, you're making everyone okay with your story. Or, or you make them okay. I'm okay, I'm okay. Because when you tell someone your father was murdered, gunned down, they get, it gets really awkward really quick. Oh, I mean, I'm it sure. just becomes silent. So my body was always trying to almost um, laugh a lot. Like I turned to laughter because mm. it was the thing that mm. I could make everyone else okay with. Wow. Yeah. So you're not only acknowledging what's happening to yourself yeah. at any kind of social thing, because at 16, you just want to get along That's with everyone. You you're just trying to make it okay for everybody else. Yes. So yeah. you develop a completely different persona completely. around. Wow. Yeah. Do, do you see this often? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if we think about one of the things that happens with trauma is that we have this sense of incredible isolation. Like, oh, my, like, especially if it's if it has to do with your parents and you're younger, like my safety net got ripped out from under me. And so, of course, what you're trying to do is kind of pull in any tiny little pieces of safety net that you can have. Mm. And the thing you got to make sure is, well, I got to make sure the rest of my safety net is okay. 
I'll deal with myself later. I just got to make sure that you all are okay and you're not going to leave me. So we do all sorts of things to reassure the other people around us. And it's part of why, I mean, there are lots of reasons why, but the the separation or divorce rates following um, something like a sexual assault are so incredibly high is because we do all of this, like, I have to try and, like, focus on my partner but we're not also focusing on actually processing the grief and the trauma. Right. Yeah. You know, I wonder if you've had this experience where people said to you, when did you take the time to process your loss? And when my late husband died, I was like, I don't have the luxury to mm-hmm. process a loss. I have to take care of a nine-year-old. I have to have a full-time job so we don't lose an income. I have to manage $100,000 in debt that he left because mm-hmm. he was so out of sorts and being able to manage his business. Uh, how how and when do you fall apart? That's a, that's a really pertinent question to a lot of people in the aftermath of trauma. And so can you give people some advice, little coping things that you can do every day that sort of help you rebuild that sense of security, safety, that eventually you're going to come back? Yeah, you know, I, I remember being in so much therapy and I, I came apart at a time in college. I was 20 after my mom died. And I remember um, a couple things that were really helpful is just setting the timer and allowing yourself to cry. Like that mm-hmm. was a really solid skill mm-hmm. because I always felt like crying. I didn't, I never, mm-hmm. never not felt like crying. Mm-hmm. So to set the timer and then to just move, to walk and put on my, I think it was a Walkman and just put it on and just go and cry and walk and go and mm-hmm. movement. It was, mm-hmm. it was huge. Mm-hmm. So I think anything movement. And now we know so much more, you know, trauma hacks of uh, weighted blankets because anxiety is another thing that comes with trauma. Right. You know, I really resonated when you said that the rush of adrenaline, the rush of cortisol, like the hypervigilance, like everything's, I'm just going to take care of everything. But if we know enough to recognize that, what do we do to calm that thing down so that it doesn't later come up in all of the health concerns that you have because of it? Well, I think this is tricky because on the one hand, we know that one of the most consistent uh, things that is problematic in the long term is when we try and avoid our feelings. Mm -hmm. So it's this idea Mm -hmm. of experiential avoidance, like, oh, gosh, I can't feel anxious. I can't feel sad. I can't feel whatever it is. The things we try and do to get rid of those feelings, I mean, I almost say never, never, but... Are, are pretty universally problematic yep. in the long run if, if those are kind of like overall strategies for you. And at the same time, attending to our body and recognizing, like literally thinking about it in a biological way, oh, I have a ton of cortisol coursing through my body. We know what cortisol does to the body. So what are some things I could do to care well for this body that has all of this like, like, cortisol coursing through it. You can go for walks. You can put a warm blanket on yourself, not because it's not okay to feel anxious, but because that's a kind thing to do mm. for a body that's in a state of anxiety. Yeah. 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 The, uh, the, the bit that you said about what did you do? Just eat cereal? You know, how did you do? How yeah. did you do that? Yeah. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Well, but you know well, what I mean. Yeah. No, like, no, but no, I this can't is the... imagine she was like watching, you know, cartoons after school but see, here's or the thing hanging is, I, out at the mall. I think maybe what she wasn't doing is right. She wasn't writing like, you know, 
love songs, but I think what she was doing yeah. is eating cereal. Yeah. And what I mean by that is it's difficult to steer where your feelings go and where your thoughts yes. go, but your body, yes. like physical sensations, you were saying like, um, how do you, how do you manage? Like, when do you get to fall apart? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, well, it's a couple thoughts. One is, I don't know that feeling and falling apart should be conflated, mm-hmm. that you can cry like, and like really cry and not completely and not be able to put it back together and do the next reasonable thing. Mm. Yeah. I think I think somehow the, the idea that like you either have your act together mm-hmm. or you get to feel yep. is is the wrong dichotomy. And then I think the physical stuff is the stuff that grounds us. Yep. Right? So like my mind goes anywhere, everywhere, a lot of times uh without my permission. (laughs) Uh, And the thing that brings me back to the here and now isn't somehow wrangling my mind because it's, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's paying attention to my body. Mm -hmm. It's paying attention to what I see, what I smell, the Mm -hmm. cereal Mm -hmm. probably is actually quite the grounding thing Mm -hmm. is the, my like, all of this crazy stuff is happening and I'm going to eat cornflakes. And the reason why bringing yourself back to the present moment is so important, at least from my perspective, is because that's the only place life happens. It's mm-hmm. it's all virtual reality when we're kind of ruminating about the past or caught up in the past or yes. worry about the future. And so sometimes if what we want are trying to do is live, it is helpful to come back to this moment. Did you notice what Jenna was saying in the past, in the future, that's where our mind goes, right? Yeah. It jumps all over mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. but we can't, we can't be hungry yesterday. Yeah. Like you, you feel what you feel in the here and now. And I think when people get swept up by the experiences that they've had, it's, it's oftentimes past stuff or it's fear for the future mm. and something that allows you to be just right here, right now, even as small as just this breath. I think this is what makes mindfulness kind of so popular nowadays and people are getting that it's like, well, am I supposed to breathe a special way? Am I supposed to breathe more zen-like, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, just pay attention to the air yeah. moving in and out of yeah. your body. It's doing it all the time yeah. and you can only take the breath that you're on. Yeah. Uh. And, you know, you bring up a good point. I mean, for me, for a long time, mindfulness and breathing in the body caused me actually more anxiety as a trauma survivor. People would say, breathe, and I, it literally made me want to go out of body. So I actually had to find it had the re- reverse effect and I've, I've worked with other clients that that's happened too. So I've had to find other ways uh, to get myself in my body that actually wasn't breathing. Mm-hmm. It was more moving. So I find yeah. that kind of interesting. We were talking about that. It's similar for me. If, I, yeah. if I'm if i told to breathe, yeah. I almost have a panic attack. Yes. But if I'm walking in nature and I can just be really mindful of, oh, this is what my feet are doing right now. And doesn't that feel good on the air feels great on my cheek. And yeah. And it allows me to move through it. So I don't know if those of us who can't sit in Lotus have yes. <laughs> something wrong with us, but I know we're a growing crowd to yeah. say, stop it. And I think yes. what we're finding is that yeah. mindfulness takes a lot of different forms. Yeah. It doesn't mean that yeah. everything is mindfulness because right. then it stops yeah. meaning anything. Yeah. It is a- just awareness of the present moment without a bunch of judgment. And not necessarily, but often 
to the physical sensations that we're experiencing. Well, and I think any of the tools that we give people who are struggling with trauma or struggling with anything life throws our way, none of the tools are inherently special or magical. It's how we use them, the function of them. Yes. So, Angela, if I'm telling you, oh, my gosh, you're anxious, breathe, breathe. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's probably not going to be helpful because no. the message that you're hearing is it's not okay for you to be anxious. That's right. Yeah. Do this thing and that'll make you not anxious. Mm. And then, of course, you're going to be more anxious when you're doing that. It's yeah. just getting your feet under yeah. you yeah. while you're feeling it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, when people sort of get this idea that it's like, wow, I'm really anxious so, or I'm really feeling something that I don't really want to feel and I'll breathe. Yeah. In uh, order to not. In order to <laughs> not. <laughs> right. It's the do- like, that's like somebody hooking you up to a lie detector, yes. putting a gun to your head and saying, calm down or I'll shoot. Yeah. It just yep. freaks not you good. out. Yeah. Yes. Right? Yep. Yes. That's awesome. Yes. That's so I know that you, um, you are a really avid um, person who's working to try to change gun laws. And mm-hmm. I think it's really important to just note that for a person who, like both of us, has lost someone due to gun violence. Yeah. I lost my husband to suicide with a gun. You lost your dad yeah. uh, to murder with a gun. That every time we hear of another story of a murder or suicide or of a school that shot up, the original trauma comes right back up. And so I wonder how you deal with that today, with the prevalence of gun violence, how often it's in the news, how, how consistently you're, you're mm-hmm. being assaulted with that. Um, that's a great question. I mean, I'm a survivor, a lead for Survivors Empowered, which is run by survivors and for Washington State. And every time, I mean, I'm an elementary school teacher. My husband's a high school principal and I have middle school twin boys. So every time the TV school shooting Mm -hmm. comes on last February, I go into such a trance that it's like I can't breathe for Mm. an entire day. I just, my whole body stops and I just get this the hype, everything comes right back. Um, and so what I've had to learn how to do is just really fight for this. I think people don't understand until it happens to them. And, and as a survivor, I feel like it's a duty that I have to like protect other people so they don't have to experience this pain. And that, that can be so hard when um, other people don't see it. They don't understand that I'm actually fighting for them. So they're, they don't get the call that their child is coming home. The complication that I was thinking about is that because it's been politicized now, people are actually not going to be able to hear about your experience because they immediately go to a place of defensiveness and of judgment around how they feel about guns. Yes. So how do you keep open the conversation for that, you know, my brothers are both gun owners. Mm-hmm. How would you talk to them about what you experienced and what you would like them to know without shoving that in, them into that defensive yeah. corner? Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and I think part of it is the story, the narrative, which is what, you know, look what this does to people. I mean, I'm not anti-guns. I mean, I don't like them, but we have the Second Amendment and people are going to have their gun, but it's safety. It's lock it up. It's make sure that they're not, they aren't in the hands of criminals. Background checks. I mean, when I came home from living overseas, you have to show your ID to buy Sudafed. You have Mm -hmm. to, for for puppets, Mm -hmm. for gosh sake, I remember my mouth just dropping open. I can get a gun on Craigslist, but I can't. So to talk to them would be like, okay, have your gun. But I think we would both find common ground and agreeing that people that that shouldn't have guns. We should have stricter laws. About Do you know that. what what makes me so sad is that they'd agree with you. Yeah. And that yet this country is completely Divided. polarized. Yeah. And yet I bet if you suggested it the way that you just suggested it, the vast majority of gun owners would say, "Well, Angela's right." 
Absolutely. What are we disagreeing about? Absolutely. So, Angela, I know you have two kids now, mm-hmm. and I know that you have this life that's full and beautiful. When you're talking to your sons about your story and what happened to you, how do you frame it for them so that they're okay and don't view it like they need to be concerned for mom about how you grew up? Um, you know, I've done so much work, and they've actually come with me. I mean, they've come came with me to writing classes with Cheryl Strait in Greece. You know, we were, and so they've been. This has been part of their life. My story has been part of their life. But I continually to remind them, or continually remind them that we're not what happened to us. It's our story. This is my story, but it doesn't have to define me. And I've worked so hard to really try to re- get that second narrative. What do I want now? Because what next? This is my trauma, and what do I do with it? And so I'm trying to teach them that we're not what happened to us and they're going to have a lot of things in their life happen that might not be what they want but but in the end what do they do with it mm, and how beautiful. do you how what do you a wonderful move on? thing yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. this idea that we are not the content of our history no. we are something more than that mm-hmm. and That's- it's this ongoing evolving beautiful story that you get to create as well. You have some ability to influence that story. It's not some predetermined thing that happened when your father got shot. Mm. Yeah. That's really beautiful and a great place to end. Angela Schellenberg, thank you for making the trip and for sitting with us in studio today. This is Beyond Well. Thank you so much. Thank you.